Hi, Rachel. Hi, Anna. You ready to talk about empathy today? I am looking forward to it. Me too. So, I think this is a really interesting topic because as a neurodiverse person, it is a thing that people think that we shouldn't be very good at. And yeah, actually, I think there's a lot of nuance to empathy that gets missed. And I have lots of thoughts. I'm so interested in that. Say more about the nuance to empathy. So there's this this idea. So I'm ADHD. I'm not, I don't have an autism diagnosis. But a lot of people think that neurodiverse people can't do empathy. And yet actually there's this idea that some people think that neurodiverse people are actually hyper-empathetic that they're so sensitive to other people's moods and emotions. And you see it on TikTok talked about the vibe check a lot. The neurodiverse person does the vibe check. And that actually that what seems like a lack of empathy is that they're processing so much information from the other person that it almost shuts you down because you're your ability to take in more is too full. You're taking in so much. Like a lot of the people that I know who used to identify as empaths, highly empathetic people, highly sensitive people in the last few months, years have actually come out and said, oh, I've got ADHD, I've got autism. I think that actually when we think about empathy, we we focus too much on the getting meaning from language side of it like can you listen to a story and do the processing the story side of it and we don't think enough about like the wider sides of empathy that's so interesting because it's what you were just saying there about empathy being linked to neurodiversity and being so aware of, of other people and what they're giving off that's similar in trauma, isn't it? I was reading something mm. the other day about uh, it, it's actually not being a highly sensitive person. It's because you've had trauma in your past and you're hyper-vigilant for, for safety cues. Yeah. So how, how does that link, do you think? I think it's really interesting because there's some evidence that says that a lot of neurodivergent people just the sheer experience of growing up neurodivergent is a form of trauma there's a study out that said that people with ADHD hear 20,000 more critical messages about themselves by age 10 than their neurotypical peers do and that doesn't stop at 10 it expands at 10 because then your peers get in on the negative messages they start coming from the people around you as well as the adults in your life that if you think of the weight of all those negative messages that you're getting and think of it in the context of someone who's actually hyper-empathetic, who goes, every time I hear a negative message, this is the impact I'm having on the other person. That is actually really traumatizing. Mm. My definition of trauma that I work to is a little t definition of trauma. So it's something that teaches you the world or the people in it are unsafe. If you're there seeing yourself as the cause of the unsafety, that 
it's because I'm disorganized, it's because I'm messy, it's because I'm late, it's because I'm untidy, it's because I can't focus, it's because I'm too loud, I'm too talkative, all those things, you are the source of the unsafety. Of course, you're going to be hypervigilant in the mm. same way that if you've had an abusive marriage, you're going to be hypervigilant for someone else's moods. You're going to be wanting to make sure that you're keeping her safe. There's a really good book by Matthew Bourne called Straight Jacket. And in it, he he's the former editor of, I think, Attitude magazine. It's a UK magazine that's for gay men. And he talks about how growing up LGBT is a form of trauma in the UK. Because if you think about what we've grown up in, all the things like when, yeah, when we were kids, it was illegal for schools to tell us that it was okay to be gay. It, there were a lot of people dying. It was the AIDS crisis when we were growing up. There was a lot of LGBT violence, like, knowing that you're part of that community, hearing the negative messages about that community. I know as a queer person myself, it had that traumatizing effect on me. And yeah, you, you're hypervigilant to those messages, to the, the vibe, to the funny look, because you're trying to keep yourself safe. I think that's all a form of empathy, but it's one that doesn't get talked about very much. Yes. And you said something earlier about the wider definition of empathy. Like, say more. Say more about the wider definition of empathy for me and and for people who maybe don't know what that is. What I was meaning by that, I think, is that empathy isn't just can you hear a story and relate to it? It's can you identify someone as part of your community? Can you see them as one of your people? So depending on when you're listening to this, there was the the submarine accident where they were going down to the Titanic and their submarine exploded. And on the internet, on the corner of the internet that I was on, there were a lot of people who didn't weren't displaying much empathy for the people who died in the crash. Mm-hmm. They were billionaires very rich people it was seen as almost something deserved something that had happened to them they brought it on themselves kind of thing Mm. and when I was watching kind of that all play out on my social media sphere I was really interested into why people weren't empathizing with them with their families like five people lost their lives where was the empathy in that Mm. And I came across a really interesting suggestion, which was that we don't see billionaires as part of our community. And you can only empathize with people who are in your community. That's so interesting. And it's made me think of Brene Brown's definition of empathy. It's about you Mm -hmm. have to have some form of experience to be able to get in the hole with someone and say, yeah, me too in order to be able to empathize and the differences yeah. between sympathy and empathy is is that similar do you think yeah i think so i've seen a lot of people say that for example go back to the neurodivergent thing neurodiverse people can sympathize but not empathize well i actually don't think i agree with that i just think we sometimes look through the neurotypical lens of 
what empathy can mean. And like, I have a, a memory of back when I used to work as a speech therapist working in the school for kids with autism and being really upset one day for various reasons, which I don't need to go into for the purpose of this story. And I'd been crying, was no longer crying, had gone down to work with one of the kids. Now, this child was non-speaking. They were, we didn't have language that we could use with each other to demonstrate empathy in the way that you might traditionally recognize as empathy. Like, I couldn't tell this child my story. They couldn't say, oh, yeah, get it. What do you need? But for whatever reason, this child, who was normally quite aloof, kept people at a distance, chose to sit next to me and leaned into my shoulder for the whole of the session. Like, to me, that is empathy from a non-speaking autistic child going, I recognize something in you is not okay. Here is all I can do about it. That... Yeah, it was a really touching moment where I was like, yeah, that kid, they're with me, they get me. But someone would have looked at that and gone, oh, that kid can't show empathy. They've got autism. Mm. They're non-speaking. We don't always recognize those to an autism professional would probably have been called sympathy. Mm -hmm. But you can't have sympathy without empathy in that context because... You don't know there's comfort needed if you can't empathize with the cues that I was giving off that were really subtle, that were puffy red eyes, that were a slightly less energetic demeanor. Like, I didn't go out there with a big old, I am sad and this is why. I was showing up just being myself, but they knew something was wrong. Yeah. Perceptive. Yeah. Yeah. I think we... we pass so much judgment and we lump people into categories without treating them on an individual basis we make assumptions and it's a natural thing to do but I think that not making assumptions and being open to how people might respond would open lots more opportunities and lots more understanding instead of saying you go in this box so so you're not neurodivergent and you fit in this box now because you've Mm -hmm. got this label so, so you're there and uh, we're here. And for you, lumping everybody together, this is how, what we're going to do for you. It's the same for the global ethnic majority. We, we mm-hmm. call them minority ethnic groups here. Well, they're not the minority. They're a global ethnic majority. Yeah. And they're not even a they. Like that majority is made up of so many different cultures and, and mm-hmm. backgrounds and beliefs. And we just put them all into one and say, well, We'll do that to try and improve this for that group of actually really diverse people. Yeah, it's that thing of community, I think, again, isn't it? It's going, you're in your community, I'm in my yeah. community barrier, like hard line between the two. There's some really fascinating experiments that I keep seeing online where people are, there's one in particular where this black man goes and talks to members of the clan in America and he thinks like you don't get two more disparate communities than a black man and a clan member 
But what he does is he meets them in a way that is filled with love, that is relating to them on a human level. He's almost like inserting himself into their community. And what's actually happened is that a lot of people have come out of the clan just by starting to see that guy as community, starting Mm. to see him as one of their community. They suddenly go, what are we doing? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think we've lost community to a certain extent. Sorry, Anna, I've interrupted you. But I, I, I really think we, I know certainly I've felt over the last 10 years, maybe, that mm-hmm. I've got less of a community now than I once had because community is not necessarily geographical, is it? Yeah. And I think that's the difference, the geography aspect of it. So I'm really lucky. I have a wide group of friends, of people that I love, but the majority of them are at least a two-hour car drive from me. Some of them <laughs> are 12-hour flights, 24-hour <laughs> flights away from me. That, in some ways, is my community and they're people that I love dearly. But if I'm sick and I need someone to bring me painkillers, I don't rely on the people in my street. I I ring the delivery man who is not (laughs) in my community. He doesn't really mind if I'm sick. He's just paid to bring me the stuff that I need. Yeah. That, to me, is is a big loss. There's not that local geographic community at the centre of our living anymore. And I think it makes a big difference on how we have divided people into these groups because the algorithms on the internet self-select. You you go more and more into your bubble. You see less and less of the people who aren't what you want to see. And it's very easy to get sucked into radical online communities or even Mm -hmm. just if you're a white person seeing majority white people come up I think I'm interested that it might be the same if you're a black person do you see majority black people come up in your curated feeds like I think we're getting pointed into I know on TikTok for example 90% of the TikTok creators that come up on my For You page are LGBT I'm LGBT I feel Mm -hmm. at home in that community but does it create this artificial line between us and straight people like is it further reinforcing that gap that outside of community which then is putting a barrier in with empathy yes (laughs) yes I think you're right I think you're entirely right and whatever I am interested in at the time then seems to come up I I, I don't spend much time on social media at the moment but that whatever is happening in my life at the time comes up because they're the mm. ones that I watch more of. So the algorithm's so clever. And you're right that if we if we don't see people as part of our community, if we can't find a common ground, then how can we have empathy and how can we understand other people's perspectives or even want to? It's about being curious for me. When I'm not sure where somebody else is coming from, it's curiosity. I wonder what is causing that. I wonder what's driving that. The questioning. Well, what makes you think that? What are your experiences? Like, tell me more, because I need more information for me to be able to make an assessment. The way that we're so apart from each other geographically, but also apart from each other physically. So even within our 
communities, we're very rarely physically there, even at work, even in our working lives now, we're very rarely in a room with people physically. We miss out on that energy. We miss out on some of that perception, you know, your story about that child who showed you empathy when you'd not expressed needing it. We don't, we live, we've lost the opportunity for those things. And for me, it's about how can we choose every day to be empathetic, to be loving, to show that we are connected, that we are in a community. This this morning, uh, uh, the doorbell went, it was posting, and uh, they delivered a moon, moon pig parcel. And I thought, oh, moon pig, why are they here? It's not my birthday. It's not Ralph's birthday. What's this for? Opened it up, really lovely card from a friend um, saying how proud they were of me and congratulations on my first publication as an author because with Anna and I are both in a collaboration book that came out yesterday obviously depending on when you're watching this came out on the 21st of September and got to bestseller in four categories in its first 24 hours uh, on Amazon and we're all really proud and so to get this card and, and a beautiful little candle that smells so lovely that's got bees on it um, I can't remember the tagline on the card it was something about really tiny but really mighty be I can't remember I'll find out we can put it in the show notes because it was funny um, but but just that I I see this friend very rarely she lives um almost an hour away from me um and just to get that in the post to know she was thinking about me and was proud of me that well I, I cried I cried when I opened it happy it's tears it's been a very teary 24 hours for both <laughs> of us hasn't it yeah it has it has it but those little things it's seemingly small even messages I had an email from somebody this morning I gave a presentation a few weeks ago I had an email from somebody who was in that presentation saying how much they valued it and can they adopt me for the next year can I can they mm-hmm. can they have me supported by me in the work that they're trying to do and of course they can and I was over the moon like oh I, I made a difference I made an impact on somebody else and them telling me that was just so rewarding and I think what what can we do to feel loved and to give love to other people freely with no expectation of any return no expectation of thanks to help with feeling connected and feeling part of a community how can we bridge some of those gaps that have been perpetuated by social media and algorithms yeah to create more of a loving society yeah, it reminds me of, like I talk to a lot of people who, I work with activists, I work with change makers, and, and one of the common things that people say to me is, I'm not a change maker. <laughs> and yet I think we're all change makers because little moments of empathy, little moments of love, I know we're going to talk about this everyday love in a future episode, but they are change making when we've had hot days over the summer and I'm expecting a parcel I will offer the postman a cold drink because in my empathy I've gone it is hot you are a human would you like a cold drink that I like to believe ripples out into he feels better does he go and do something nice for someone else, do they then feel better? Does he have 
more energy to spend a few minutes talking on the doorstep with someone who's isolated. Like, I don't see the ripples of impact that come out from that. But I believe that in every moment that I empathize with someone, that I do something loving towards someone, the ripples from that are exponential. And if that happens with everything I do throughout the day, actually, you can't help but be a change maker. If you're living your life rooted in love, you cannot help but be a change maker because the ripples will spread, whether you like it or not, whether you intend it or not. Exactly, exactly. It's like uh, what's the what's the saying, the common saying about a butterfly, the the difference that a butterfly's wings can make somewhere else in the world. Yes, it, like, it yeah. flaps its wings somewhere and makes a hurricane in another place. Yeah, something like yeah, something like that. But it's it's that, isn't it? It's the 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 small, seemingly small thing. Mm-hmm. that then has an impact on your day so this morning I'll give you an example I decided Ralph and I were going to walk to nursery it's about a half hour walk and so he's in his pram but halfway there he decides he wants to come out but he doesn't want to walk he wants to be held and he's so heavy now I can't hold him and push the pram at the same time and the bus came and I thought I'm just going to get on the bus because he's crying and uh, he's upset and I'm getting stressed because I can't hold him and push the pram at the same time. So I'm going to get on the bus. But there was traffic and I couldn't cross the road. And I signaled to the bus driver that I wanted to get on and she waited. She waited until the traffic was cleared for me to get on the bus. And it cost me two pounds to go about 100 yards. I don't even know how many yards 100 yards is, but it wasn't very far. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But it was worth it. And that little ripple on the rest of our day, Ralph arrived at nursery happy and went in happy. Mm-hmm. I then walked back feeling good for the walk. Like, it could have been so much different. Yeah. Yeah. And to do that, that bus driver had to empathise with you. Yes. Yeah. And when you think about the, I hate to use this word, but the Karen phenomena, the, the videos <laughs> you see of people shouting at service workers and... It makes me think, like, first of all, it makes me think, God, I'm glad I don't work retail anymore because I <laughs> did not enjoy my days as a customer service assistant. But it made me think there's no empathy in those situations. There's no sense of you're just another human trying to do your job. And yet those people in customer service situations are meant to empathise with their customers to provide good service. What do you think about when that empathy is only going one way in a relationship? In the example that you've just given, I've got a twofold answer. So what you've just given about service workers, I think there's something about taking on the identity of this corporation. So you're no longer yourself. You're the business. Mm-hmm. And it's dehumanizing, and people don't stop to think, well, that's just a person that's trying to do the job, and you need to be kind and empathetic and understand they're doing the best that they can for you within their limits. I think that's, I don't know if it is a phenomenon, maybe I need to look into whether there's any research on it, but that, that's how it seems to me. That's how it's always seemed. And people behave in ways that they wouldn't necessarily to someone who wasn't represented a big corporation. You said about different levels of empathy in a relationship. 
and I think it can be very difficult when one person is highly empathetic and another isn't to feel heard and feeling heard and seen and valued is a fundamental of all relationships doesn't matter what they are I talk about my toddler a lot but one of the main things for him is when he's upset he needs to know that I know why he's upset Mm -hmm. and that I'm listening to him and taking on board what he wants. So when he's upset that I won't let him watch another episode of Paddington because we've got to leave, <laughs> I have to validate that because he's really upset about it. He doesn't want to go to nursery. He wants to stay and watch Paddington at home, snuggled up with his mother. And he's going to be upset about that. If I had no empathy and just told him to suck it up and deal with it, what would that create in him? And what, what's been created in us? Because often with children... When we were younger, that is what we'd have been told. Suck it up. Do it. Stop crying. No empathy. Because children are often seen as a thing to control and mould and make fit in with societal norms. Whereas actually, children are meant to be wild and messy and not loud and working out where the boundaries are. So yeah, I've got a little bit off off the original question but I think if there's an imbalance of empathy your relationship can't last for very long and there needs to be some basis upon which the person who's not showing any does some reflection some self-reflection and growth because that's another thing about our society is there are a lot of people who don't believe in growth in personal growth and learning and changing there's this perception that you sort of fixed as who you are when you're a child even I suppose because that's what we get told at school you know oh you'll never amount to anything if you x y and z if you've got detention now always a bad lad or she she's a gossip or noisy like there's this Mm -hmm. this perception that you're gonna stay who you were at 12 at 24 at 34 and I think a lot of people do that because they think that there is no, that's who they are. They've internalised those messages and think that that's who they are and who they have to be. And so they have they stick with that and they're happy with that. But then there's another subset of people who consistently want to grow and learn and change and be the best that they can be. And I part of me thinks that maybe that is linked to trauma as well. Again, it's just a hunch. I don't have any research to back it up, but... Yeah, I don't know. What do you think about that? I think it's an interesting divide. And I have noticed that, that there are people who introspect and people who view themselves as fixed. And I actually wonder if both of them are a different type of trauma response. Mm, yes. yes. That there's the trauma response where you internalise it and you go, okay, I'm I'm going to learn and grow and heal and overcome. And that is my how I respond to trauma. And then I think there's also the trauma response of I've come to a status quo with who I am. I've come to see a fixed view of myself that I can live with. 
and the fear of introspecting to look at the shadows that are lurking beneath mm. without the tools to know how to love them, which is something I want to talk about in a future episode. That is terrifying. And I think that is just as valid a trauma response if you're sat out there going, oh God, I, I don't look beyond my surface. Like, we're not taught how to do that. Some of us as adults seek it. I think that's why the self-help book industry is booming. I think that's why I'm a coach. I think it's what keeps me in (laughs) clients is the people who want guiding through that process. But I also know there's an awful lot of people out there who to to them, the thought of looking under the surface must be terrifying if they at some level know they're not going to like everything they find under there and they don't know how to hold that. Anna, that's so right. That's so that's so true. But in in my experience of meeting and knowing people like that, yeah, I hundred percent think you're right. And we all have trauma in our lives, don't we? Like, mm. even, I I do not know anybody. And I loved your definition of little t trauma earlier. That like that's mm-hmm. like I do not know anybody that hasn't had little t trauma in their no. life that has shaped how they are. I don't. I can't think of anyone. <laughs> like, no. But and I so think... having empathy for other people, for for just accepting that's part of being trauma informed. I guess just accepting that everybody has some level of trauma, mm-hmm. and treating people with respect and kindness and love and curiosity, being curious about mm-hmm. what they need, what they want. Yeah. It's what's going to start those ripples. It's where the the change comes from, is getting curious, staying open. Yeah. I think that's going to wrap us up for today, looking at our little timer. There's so much in this I think we're going to come back to. But what I'd really love to speak to you next time about, Rachel, because I know that you are just so wise on this topic, is that idea of the everyday love and how we show love to people in the everyday because mm-hmm. there's there's so much richness in there. So can we talk about that next time, please? Oh, yes, let's do it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I will speak to you soon then, my lovely. Thank you. Bye. Bye.